Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This week's guest is no stranger to listeners of Inquiring Minds. Carl Zimmer is a celebrated science columnist, especially at the New York Times, but also at other places, including the National Geographic and the Atlantic. And we've had him on the show to talk about viruses in episode 127, and then back in 2018 to talk about his book on genetics called She Has Her Mother's Laugh. He's been doing an exceptional job covering the COVID-19 pandemic, but somehow he also managed to take some time out to finish his latest book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Carl Zimmer, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. You know, the last time we chatted on this podcast, we actually touched a little bit uh, about the topic of your, your latest book, Life's Edge, this question of whether a virus is alive. <laughs> and I thought it would be fun to sort of pick up where we left off. You know, in your, in your research on this book, have you come closer to making a decision on whether, whether we or scientists or you, Carl Zimmer, think that a virus is alive? I have to say that uh, as, as a writer, I just love uh, watching uh, the fight unfold. <laughs> um, I, I, I see myself as really a chronicler of this long-running debate, uh, which honestly shows no sign of ending. Um, so uh, you know, not long after viruses were discovered and people started to realize what they were made of, uh, they realized, oh, this is kind of like life as we know it, but kind of not. And so some people said, well, obviously it's not alive. And other people said it was. And, you know, I, the other day got an email from a scientist who told me, of course, viruses uh, are alive. And anybody you ask who is an expert in this would tell you that. And then that afternoon, I got another email saying just the opposite. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, a scientist assuring me that all experts would agree with him. 
So that gives you a sense of where things are right now in, in the scientific community, on, among people who study viruses. I mean, I'm not a virologist, so it's I just find this remarkable. Um, I have to say that I'm certainly um, really intrigued by the more imaginative ways that people uh, deal with the paradox of viruses. Um, the thing about viruses is that they tick a lot of boxes of what we kind of think of as the hallmarks of life. You know, they can evolve. You know, we see this with the coronavirus variants right now. Um, they can replicate. You know, every time someone gets COVID-19, they're replicating millions of copies of new coronaviruses. But they don't really have a metabolism. They're, they they don't eat. They don't grow. They just get into other cells and the cells do the work for them. So a lot of scientists just feel like, well, if you don't tick all the boxes, then you're not alive. Um but there is one scientist named Patrick Fortes who has argued like, well, when viruses are just floating around as, as these little uh, packages of, of genes, um, you know, scientists call these virions, um, but then the virions get into cells and their genes take over the cell. Patrick Fortera likes to call these virocells because now the cells are totally reorganized. They, they, they'll even build new structures to be little virus factories. And so basically, he would argue that that cell has a new identity. He calls it a virocell because its purpose now is to make new viruses. And at least at that part of the virus's cycle, it's alive. So, you know, viruses might sort of jump back and forth between life and non-life just to make a mockery of the whole definition of life that we have. And, and what does that put vaccines? Because, you know, vaccines don't, most of them don't have any live virus or so we are told. And yet they sort of also tick off some of those boxes. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, uh, uh, certainly uh, some of these new viruses, the mRNA viruses, uh, uh, vaccines, sorry, um, they they have some lifelike qualities, and you know, in the sense that um, they go into our cells, and our cells then read the messenger RNA and produce proteins. So there is a there is this process of biology that that takes place in our bodies all the time. The vaccines are triggering that process to protect us from from the viruses. So. Um, so there certainly are elements of life to to these vaccines. So that gets me to another in interesting point that you raise quite early on is this question of when a cell is part of an organism, is the cell alive? And I think that, you know, your book is so timely because we are creating organs in the lab now, which are essentially collections of cells and not just like a kidney. You know, there are people who are working on little tiny mini proto brains. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. How, how are you thinking about the difference between, say, you know, a skin cell or a brain cell and a single celled organism and how, you know, where the definition of life comes in? It's it's a it's a really tough question. I mean, and I think that toughness is what makes it so interesting, you know, bacteria floating around in the ocean as single cells, um, they're, I don't, I, 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 I doubt that people would argue that they're not alive. Now then what, what then about a cell, one of the trillions of cells that make up our own bodies? Um, they, they have metabolism, uh, they sense their surroundings, they 
you know, they can, uh, they can divide into new cells. So they seem like they're alive too, but you know, their, their, their life as it were, depends on their being in a, their own very special environment, which is an environment made up of other cells. So, you know, if you, you know, you, you have immune cells in your body, that are crawling around and looking for viruses and other invaders. Um, and, you know, it seemed very much alive. They kind of look like an amoeba uh, as they're crawling around. You just take that out of its environment, just stick it on a slide. Um, it'll crawl around for a while, but eventually it'll die because it can't live on its own. Um, and so, you know, life kind of de- is contingent in a sense on uh, the conditions uh, that it that it depends on. Um, so what then happens when we figure out how to keep that cell alive in a dish? You know, if, if it's 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 a basically there's just a recipe that you need to figure out and then you can keep these cells going not only that but i mean as you mentioned um scientists are figuring out how to uh keep stem cells alive in dishes and not only that but coax them to grow divide and develop into brain cells and not only that but turn into clusters of hundreds of thousands or millions of neurons these clusters, these brain organoids, as they're called, even give off their own versions of brain waves. So, you know, that really brings us into really deep questions about life. Because, you know, if we, when we think about our own lives, you know, what's really important to us is is the the experience of life we have through our brains. You know, the, the definition, legal definition of death these days is brain death. Well, here are these little brains that are produced from human cells that are producing brain waves and and producing different kinds of cells found in the human brain, producing layers like in the cortex. What are these things? Um, I, I, I'd argue they are alive, but I think they're a kind of life that um, it's very difficult for us to reckon with and and brings up all sorts of ethical issues as well, um, you know. Do we, you know, these are really important uh, potentially for studying um, diseases, genetic disorders that affect the brain. But um, do we need to sort of keep an eye on them and figure out when they, when and if they become aware? Do they, will they start learning on their own? Uh, What then? And, uh, you know, this is another, you know, uh, place where our, our comfortable notions about life just break down completely. And, you know, it's sort of it's sort of interesting to hear us sort of have to grapple this when everyone thought the real question would be generalized artificial intelligence, you know, and whether a computer is sentient. And yet here we have something that it seems even even more problematic because these are now biological rather than, you know, mechanical or or electronic um, things that we are building and you know, it also brings me to think about when you when you talk about like if we're saying a cell is not a, a you know something is not alive if it can't survive outside a particular environment. I mean, that's true of somebody on a ventilator and nobody, or even with a you know with a pacemaker or some kind of other device that you know keeps their heart beating and and sort of breathes and and so and we and, and I don't think anybody would ever say, well, that person isn't alive. Unless, I mean, that's why we had to come up with the whole brain death definition at some point. 
Yeah, well, uh, the I, I write about the the origin of the brain death concept in, in Life's Edge. Um, you know, the the thing is that you know for for a long time, um, you know, death seemed to be a pretty straightforward thing for doctors. Um, in fact, um, there was a French doctor uh, named Xavier Bichat who, um, in the early uh, around eighteen hundred, he would study uh, death as a way to understand life, and you know he would he would examine criminals right after they had been executed. He would do all sorts of gruesome experiments on dogs. Um, it's all rather creepy, but he was incredibly influential, um, and he had this wonderful uh, his own definition of life. He said life consists in the sum of the functions by which death is resisted, uh, and. So basically, um, you know, once death could not be resisted anymore, life was gone. Um, but uh, when uh, the uh, the iron lung was invented in the 1900s and then later improved on as, as ventilators, you had the situation in the 1950s where uh, patients who were, you know, were being brought into hospitals, they, they suffered, uh, you know, horrific injuries in car accidents or drowning. And um, you could keep their their hearts beating and their, their lungs breathing uh, with the help of a ventilator, but their brains were just gone. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, it, within a couple of days, they, they would be dead. Um, and this really, you know, really uh, was very frustrating for doctors at the time, especially because here were these people whose whose organs were still intact, but clearly had no prospect of regaining consciousness. And so the debate began, well, should we just take them off these ventilators and uh, use their organs for transplantation? Um and out of this emerged the, the, the concept of brain death. Um, in other words, that, uh, you know, if you can determine that, the, you know, there's no activity in, in, in a brain uh, and no hope of that activity coming back, then you can declare someone brain dead and that that is, in effect, uh, announced you declaring them dead. Um, but there have been, you know, cases where people have... Um, you know, sur survived, if, if that's the right word for it, for a very long time. Um, and, you know, there's a girl named Jaya McMath who lived uh, for uh, for a few years after being declared brain dead. And that sort of triggered this whole debate um, because, uh, you know, her clearly her organs were still functioning. Um, you know, her, her she had a homeostasis that her body was maintaining keeping her body temperature stable, um, balancing the chemicals in, in her body. Um, she didn't need any help for that. All she needed was a little help breathing. But her brain was essentially uh, just was gone, sadly. Um, and so, you know, there's a debate about, well, is, is brain death really death? Is that, you know, is that how we're going to, is the brain going to be how we I think about life, at least for ourselves as humans? Or are there other ways of thinking about life and death? I mean, that also kind of reminds me of, of another part of your book where you talk about a python that after it eats, <laughs> this kind of dramatic, uh, you know, description of it eating a, a rodent, but then it like 
it's it rests and its metabolism almost slows to a stop. And it made me think of, you know, hibernating frogs that, you know, essentially still live under the ice. And like, are they alive when they get to this point where you could still wake them up if you warm them up? But in that moment, you know, they're not they're not responsive. They're you know, they're they're, they're not really metabolizing. Like, how, What do you think about that situation? Yeah. So so these are um, cases where, you know, animals are going to these extremes, um, not because they uh, were in an accident or suffered some injury, but um, they're going through a cycle that's an adaptation for them to survive, actually. Um, so, you know, I, I uh, for part of the book, I hung out with pythons for a while with a scientist who studies their metabolism. And, you know, they, you feed them some rats and they will uh, just, just burst into action. You know, they'll kill the rats, they'll swallow them whole, and then um, they will actually ramp up their metabolic rate to an incredible level just to digest these things. Um, you know, actually their metabolic rate is on par with a galloping horse and they keep their rate like that for days. They're just lying there, but inside it's like there's a racehorse. Um, and, and then once they're done absorbing uh, all they can from that meal, uh, then, then they do go into this, uh, very low metabolic state, but, um, but they can come right out of it, uh, very quickly. Um, I also write about bats. I went to visit uh, an abandoned uh, graphite mine in New York where bats hibernate. And um, they're just astonishing. You know, they're, they're, they're clinging to uh, the walls and roof of this mine. And their, their temperature totally matches the surrounding air in winter. And they'll be there for months, um, not eating anything, drinking very little. Um, and, but they can, they have a way of rousing themselves so that in the spring they're ready to go on with their lives. So, uh, I, I think actually there's an even more extreme version of this, which, uh, for me really, um, blurs the line incredibly between life and death. Um, so there are animals called tardigrades, tiny little critters that live in the ground, live in the ocean, um, sometimes they're called water bears because they have these cute little uh, legs that they amble around on. And normally they just go about their business. They go feeding on bacteria and other stuff. But if they have the, the bad luck of uh, getting dried out, you know, there's a drought or something like that, they don't die. Uh, they they go into what scientists sometimes call a third state of existence. Uh, as the water leaves their body, they replace the water molecules with uh, certain form, certain sugar molecules that behave like water, but don't evaporate. Um, and they produce proteins that kind of lock together around all the existing structures in their cells. Uh, and in, in effect, are like glass. So they effectively turn themselves into glass, these tardigrades. And, you know, by a lot of definitions of life, um, they're not alive anymore. They cannot carry out any chemical reactions anymore. You know, in a hibernating bat, they're still 
the heart's still beating, ATP still being used up for fuel. Not in these things. These water bears, um, whatever they are, they're not alive. And they can stay in this state for decades. Uh, scientists have sent them into space uh, and they have uh, resisted the challenge of being in outer space and been brought back and been revived because you put them, give them some water and they start putting the water back into their cells and then they go on with their lives. So, you know, when you, when you start to look at, at, at the, uh, at the borderlands around life, you start to find these really bizarre uh, examples that really force you to, to rethink your assumptions about what it means to be alive. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. And it also kind of brings me to this, like, the what perhaps might be the f- future for humans. I don't know. Some people think it's already here which is cryogenics, essentially, you know, putting us in a hibernating or frozen state with the hope that, you know, someday in the future, when we have the technology, we can be woken up and live again. Have you thought about what studying these kinds of borderland creatures, what it might tell us about whether cryogenics is something that humans should actively pursue? Uh, I would be very skeptical about cryogenics, about uh, about you know people who look at it as a, a as a kind of immortality, um, because we're not tardigrades. Tardigrades and other uh, organisms that can go into this third state, um, they have evolved um, a, a lot of molecular adaptations to make that work. We we haven't, uh, and so uh, you know I don't. You know, I, I I doubt that our cells would would really tolerate being essentially turned to glass. Um, I don't think we'd come out of that very well. That being said, I, I, I you know there is a lot of value in understanding um, these kinds these kinds of extreme conditions, and you know there there are, there's a lot of research going on into hibernating animals, 
animals that you know end up in you know in, in locked in ice uh, sometimes um, because there could be some some clues that would be valuable for medicine. So, for example, you know, if someone is is in a critical condition, can you cool their bodies safely? So that you can stop some sort of uh, process that might kill them, uh, and then be able to safely warm them up again. I mean, that's there's a that's people have researched that for years, and it's still an area of research. Um, also, you know, can you um, can you freeze organs um, without uh, doing damage when the ice crystals form? Uh, and they're you can just look to, you know, squirrels or bears or other animals that uh, regularly lower their blood pressure, uh, blood, I'm sorry, blood temperature um, each winter. You can get some clues. But I, I would be really skeptical that you could do that to an entire person with a, you know, I mean, our brains alone are such exquisitely delicate uh, organs that require so much energy every day. Um I'd be skeptical that this would work. And, you know, I'm sorry for the people who uh, paid the money to uh, to have themselves preserved cryogenically. I, I don't I don't think they're coming back. So one more kind of look into a bizarre creature <laughs> that can help us understand how we even think about our own sort of intelligence or or what we consider the kind of really human aspects of being alive. So we've talked about brain death as being part of this definition. Um, we've talked about the, you know, the problem of, you know, when we wake somebody up from a frozen state, it's also, we also need their brain to be functioning the way it was before they went to sleep or before they died. And then we have slime mold. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about slime mold and, you know, what it can sort of tell us about what it means to be intelligent, I suppose, is maybe the word to ask. Yeah. Uh, so I'm in the in the book uh, Life's Edge. I I explore some of the hallmarks of of life. You know, scientists may struggle to define what life is, but um, there are these hallmarks that keep coming up as as being uh, essential to life uh, to, to understanding life. Uh, and you know we we mentioned you know homeostasis you know the, the how these bats are able to survive have this sort of stable internal environment even in the middle of winter uh and you know pythons they they the, they really are champions of the hallmark of metabolism living things also need to um make decisions they they need to make choices. They need to do things. They need to to take in information from their surroundings and then respond in a way that's beyond just random. And I, I have to say that the slime molds are 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 the uh, just the exemplar of that. Um, now people may say, "Oh, what are you talking about? What are slime molds?" So slime molds uh, you can see if you go out in the summer into the woods and you might see some something that looks like a blob of jelly or something like that on the forest floor. Um, they, they have names like dogs vomit, which kind of gives you a sense of what they look like. So a slime mold will be just one single gigantic cell that, you know, can get to be the size of a placemat. Um, and it's made up of 
tentacles of, of threads filled with protoplasm that's pumping back and forth through it. Uh, and um, they can expand it. They can move. They can crawl around uh, very, very slowly, but they, they can do it. And, and they've been doing it for hundreds of millions of years. So scientists love slime molds because they can take a little piece of one and dry it out, bring it to their lab, and then um, bring it back to life. You know, just put it in a Petri dish, uh, spritz some water on it, uh, and give it a little food. Um, the food they like is oatmeal, or at least the bacteria that are on the oatmeal. And they will start to extend their golden tentacles towards the oatmeal and feed on it and be very happy. So you can actually then give these slime molds little challenges. You know, you can put the oatmeal behind a wall uh, in the dish and the, the slime mold will find a way around the wall. Uh, you can create a maze in a dish for a slime mold. The slime mold will navigate its way through the maze to find the food. Um, you can give the slime molds several different kinds of food and the slime mold will actually form a network that is optimized to get the most food out of all the different food sources with the least amount of tentacles. It's really actually solving a mathematical problem this way. Um, and so, you know, they don't have brains. They're not made, they're not multicellular. There's just one cell that's, that's doing all this, making all these incredibly sophisticated uh, decisions about what to do next. So there is, I think that, you know, one of the hallmarks of, of life is a, is a kind of intelligence not a intelligence like filling out an SAT test, but a more fundamental kind of intelligence about how to respond in a non-random way to the world around yourself. I mean, it's, I think it's it's just so interesting to think about where the source then of the intelligent life form or or, or the the sentient life or whatever you want to call it might be. And and we can also look to humans to get some answers, obviously. And so I wanted. To, to ask you to tell us a little bit about the Cotard delusion or Cotard syndrome, um, in which a person has the conviction that they themselves are no longer alive. Yeah. So I, I got very interested in, in uh, the Cotard syndrome because um, the thing is that I, I think that part of our problem with uh, death and life and and trying to understand the divisions between these kinds of states of existence is that we think it should be easy. We think it should be easy to come up with a definition of life. We think it should be easy to, to draw a line between life and death because it feels so obvious to us. You know, it, like, I, I don't need uh, a PhD to know that I am alive. I just feel alive. Um, but I think that feeling of being alive is actually more of an intuition that emerges about from our brains, which have certain circuits that have adapted to uh, make us aware of our, you know, the interstates of our bodies, you know, for just very practical reasons, you know, like we need to be aware of, of, of what's inside of our bodies to respond, like if we're feeling pain in, for, for some reason, to avoid the source of that pain. Likewise, we're very sensitive to other living things. You know, our brains are tuned to recognize uh, biological motion, for example. Um, and you, you can, th there, are, there are good reasons to, to think that this 
would have been a good adaptation for our distant ancestors um, because, you know, if you're going to evade a predator, you want to be able to recognize that predator as opposed to, you know, a rock that's just rolling down a hill, a rock rolling down a hill and a wolf running down a hill. They're capable of moving in very different ways. So we have these all these intuitions, I think, built into us. And um, I think some uh, these these psychiatric disorders that break that circuitry are really fascinating because they can show us just how how much we rely on these intuitions. So Cotard syndrome was named after a French uh, physician named Jules Cotard. And in 1874, he examined a woman uh, who uh, declared that she had no brain, no nerves, no chest, no stomach, no intestines. She said, in Cotard's notes, he wrote, there's only skin and bones of a decomposing body. Um, now, you know, it's a little odd that somebody who is just a corpse can explain to her doctor that she is just a corpse. But, you know, people with Cotard syndrome actually can give you very elaborate explanations for why that is, you know, that that uh, they've been turned into a, into a zombie that's no longer alive, for example. And they're as convinced of this as you and I are convinced that we are alive. Uh, and it has more to do with the circuitry in our brain than some sort of like rational conclusion that we've derived from science. Uh, and so I just bring these these things up because I, I, I think, you know, we, we need, you know, these intu intuitions are powerful um, and we need to handle them with care because they can... Um, make us think that hard problems are easy when in fact they're really, really hard. So I want to remind our listeners that Carl's new book, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to end with a look to what could be a pretty close future and why it's so important to struggle with these issues now <laughs> before that future gets here. You know, you end the book with the description of... Um, you know, one scientist named Cronin who thinks that we're going to solve, we're going to figure out where life began um, or how life began very soon. And in fact, the suggestion is that it's it wasn't something that took a long time to happen, but rather when the conditions were right, when life started to originate, it happened very quickly. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about that idea and what what you're looking for over the next few years um, in terms of if there's going to be a real shift in terms of how, how we approach this question of what is alive or what is life? Yeah, well, Lee Cronin, uh, he's a uh, chemist at, at uh, the University of Glasgow, and um, he uh, has built himself a robot chemist, which basically day in, day out is mixing together chemicals and coming up with new recipes that he hopes will um, produce droplets that have lifelike behaviors. Um, they're already acting very strangely, kind of running around his dishes in, in bizarre ways. And so he's pretty confident that um, after a while, he'll, he'll hit upon um, a combination of chemicals that um, is very, very, very lifelike, that maybe we'll just have to call it life. Um, now I, I will say that he, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who disagree with him. I mean, the, the, the field of origin of life studies is nothing if not contentious, 
but um, you know, the, he, I think that his work is definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, and, and you know, if he, if he is right, then in a way it might, the solution to the origin of life might be a lot easier than people have thought. It might not have taken millions of years, it might've taken a few hundred years, maybe just a few years, maybe less. Um, and so, so he is, hoping to do it in his own lifetime. So, uh, you know, obviously we shall see, watch this space. But, um, you know, I, what's interesting is that he's not actually trying to um, create what he thinks that uh, the earliest forms of life were like on Earth. So he's not building cells with proteins or DNA or RNA in them. There are other people who are doing that. And it's really fascinating research. He's not, he's just mixing chemicals. And that's because he is convinced that um, life is not something that is unique to certain molecules. You know, like it's be like saying like only rocks ha have gravity. It's like, no, that's just, just a property of the universe. Um, so so again, so if he is able to make living things that have nothing to do with life as we know it, then that would be a profound um, discovery. Um, now, it's possible that we may discover life as we don't know it on other planets as well. That will be equally profound, but it'll be a little harder to study that, you know, if it's a planet around another star than if it's just sitting in a lab in Scotland somewhere. Well, we'll definitely watch this space. <laughs> um, Carl Zimmer, thank you so much for coming back on Inquiring Minds. Thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Charles Blyle, and Dale LeMaster. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. I'll see you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.